Good evening. Our Old Testament reading tonight is from Isaiah 53, which you can find in the bulletin, or we'll have it on the screens as well. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant, and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from men who hid their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was a chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth, like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut out? cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people. And they made his grave with the wicked and with the rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was a will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. This is the word of the Lord. All right, let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we come before you in the mighty name of Jesus. Lord, um, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you, Lord, that you uh, sympathize, that you know what it's like to suffer. We thank you, Lord, that you took on our shame and our guilt and our sin and that you bore the wrath of God. Father, I pray that your mercy would be made manifest through the preaching of your word. In Jesus' holy and precious name that I pray, amen and amen. Again, my name is Andrew Russell. I want to welcome you here. I'm one of the pastors. And just if you're just joining us for tonight, uh, we have been going through a series entitled Shadows of the Cross, and we've been looking at how the Old Testament shows us the, 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 the completion of the prophecies. It, 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 the Old Testament looks back and, and points forward to the, to the day when Jesus would die on a cross. And, and so we've looked at Leviticus. We've looked at various passages to show you that all of Scripture points to Jesus. You could find Jesus from Genesis to Revelation. And may we find Jesus tonight in Isaiah 53. So I have six kids, and uh, I'm going to tell this story. And, you know, Anytime you tell a story about your family, 
especially a funny one, it, 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 it has the, uh, the potential to embarrass somebody. And so I want to tell this in a way that does not embarrass one of my uh, uh, children. And so I, I, it's going to be funny, hopefully. You know, when you say it's going to be funny, you, you, you know, it's kind of like you tell the joke and then, and then you have to explain it. So I've already messed myself up. But my two-year-old daughter, she loves to tell stories. And one time, you know, I asked her one day, I said, how was your day? And she gave me this novel worth of information. Uh, she said she got into a fight with a baby. She got arrested and thrown into prison. <laughs> that she wandered and traveled the forest by herself. And it was unbelievable. You know, it was entertaining. It was filled with suspense. It was dynamic. But it wasn't true. <laughs> now, she is, she is learning, right? She's, she's learning, and, and she has a deep imagination. And that's what I love about her. She, if you just ask her the question, how was your day? Unlimited possibilities <laughs> would ensue. And, you know, I, that's why I love kids, right? When kids look at the world, they see unlimited possibilities. And somehow, we forget this, right, when we get older. We, uh, we come face to face with the harshness of reality. We, we've been maybe disappointed by life, and as we get older, we get more cynical and pessimistic because reality has disappointed us. We no longer see stories as uh, our story filled with unlimited possibilities or hidden in some grand meta-narrative, some great story that is over us, but we see impossibilities, impracticality, broken dreams, and difficulties. And we might say that the, the gospel of Jesus Christ, it sounds unbelievable, it, it sounds amazing, it sounds like all of these unlimited possibilities filled with drama, but I don't know if it's true or believable. And so tonight we're going to look at two things, what makes the gospel believable, and secondly, what makes suffering meaningful? So the first thing, what makes something believable, particularly the gospel, but I'm going to uh, step back and just say, you know, what generally makes something believable? And I came up with five things. Now, there's more than five things, but bear with me. So one, if something is believable, then it has to correspond with your reality, right? Would y'all agree with that? It, 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 it can be imaginary, all right? Two, it has to be coherent, uh, which means that it can't be confusing or incomprehensible. Y'all agree with that one? It has to be coherent, correspond with reality. Three, a, a, a more than you has to agree on it. It has to be agreed upon by multiple people, right? It's not esoteric. Four, there has to be proof. If something is believable, there must be proof. It can't be arbitrary. And five, it has to be relatable, right? If something is not relatable, it's alien or it's distant. It, you can't really believe something that's not relatable. And so I, Isaiah chapter 53 is concerned with belief. He, uh, the, the prophet prophesies about this future suffering Messiah who would come 
and bring salvation. And the writer asks the question in verse 1, who has believed our report? And, and what is this report? Uh, we see in Isaiah 52, verses 3 through 10, earlier on, that the Lord will redeem Israel from Assyrian oppression. It is the good news that, that God will reign in Zion. He will bear his holy arm in the midst of all the nations. He will save his people. He will destroy systemic oppression. He will restore Israel from exile and bring them to the place like they were in the times of King David. But the people of Israel did not believe this report of the prophet Isaiah and other prophets like Jeremiah and Hezekiah and Ezra. All the prophets foretold the day when the Messiah would come to defeat all of Israel's enemies, restore the ruined temple, bring them back from exile and bring peace and salvation. And this Messiah would be a prophet like Moses, as it says in Deuteronomy 18, a, a righteous branch of King David. The prophet Jeremiah prophesied that in Jeremiah 23 and, and Isaiah 42, a light for the nations. So let me ask this question, why should this great report filled with unlimited possibilities be believable? Remember the five things that has to correspond with reality, has to be relatable, there has to be proof, it has to be agreed upon by more than one person. So I'm, I'm going to kind of put it through that uh, grid and see and to show you why this report was believable. Now, the reports of the prophets were coherent uh, because all of Israel knew them, and they could uh, uh, repeat these prophecies from memory. Uh, secondly, all the prophecies agreed with one another. Uh, they weren't any outliers, and there was proof that the prophecies were not arbitrary because each prophet was called by God. They were called to be God's mouthpiece and represent all of God's people which confirmed their legitimacy. And the prophecies were also relatable because we see in Isaiah 52 that they rejoice in its fulfillment. They cried out, how beautiful on the mountains are those, uh, 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 the feet of him who brings good news, who, who, who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who, who says to Zion, your God reigns. But in Isaiah 53 verse 1, the good news of salvation is no longer believed because uh, God's servant that is high and exalted in Isaiah 52 and 13 was marred beyond human expression. His form was disfigured. He looked like an oppressed Jew underneath Assyrian domination. He looked like a defeated king like a God who was dead and powerless. He, he looked weak and frail. He looked unimpressive and unconvincing. No wonder God's people didn't believe Isaiah's report. Because the one thing that makes something believable for them, you know, out of those five things, they said, yeah, it's coherent, yeah, it's relatable, yeah, it was agreed upon, but it doesn't correspond with my reality. 
because they were suffering. They were in exile. And, and how could this report of this king to come be one who would suffer, be one who would be marred beyond appearance? You know, they, uh, they were still, uh, oh, sorry, uh, they were still under oppression and they were living under exile even after God had delivered them from Egypt. So they were delivered from Egypt and they, were, they had Babylonian exile and Assyrian exile and, and there's deliverance after deliverance and they're wondering when would this mighty king come? When would this servant of God come to save them, this Messiah? And sometimes I wonder as a preacher that question, who will believe our report? Who will believe this message? Right? Will the good news of Jesus penetrate the hearts of believers and non-believers? Who will believe this report? What must I do to make the word of God believable? Do I have to sing the sermon? You know, y'all know me as a singer. But even if I, if I sang the sermon, uh, uh, it won't be truly believable because the truth of the matter is that few people will believe the gospel. Few people will find the report of Isaiah compelling. Few people will trust in Jesus as, as the Messiah sent from God to bring salvation from sin. John Calvin said this, he says, and yet it does not detract anything from the gospel of Christ, that there are few disciples who receive it, nor does the small number of believers lessen its authority or obscure its infinite glory. But on the contrary, the loftiness of the mystery is the reason why it scarcely obtains credit in the world. It is reckoned to be folly because it exceeds all human capacities. Jesus himself quoted Isaiah 53.1 and John 12.38 after he did all these miraculous signs and the crowd still did not believe. This report will only be believed if God reveals it. My message will only be believed if God reveals it. The gospel will only be believed if God reveals it. We see it in verse 1, the arm of the Lord. I have no power to convince you of the truth of this message. The arm of the Lord must reveal it. Faith comes, uh, faith must be confirmed with revelation. And Jesus is the arm of the Lord made bare before all to see. And you would think this arm of the Lord, the, the Yahweh, God's righteous right arm, the, the arm that brings power, the arm that brings blessing, the arm that uh, defeats all the enemies, the arm that shows the, the regalness and the majesty and the glory, that this arm is revealed in humility and suffering. The suffering servant of Isaiah 53 grew up in obscurity like a young plant, it says. The world did not know of his birthday. Like uh, a young plant, uh, uh, no one desired him. The only people who knew about Jesus were a few shepherds, some, some wise men, and a king that wanted to kill him at the birth. He had no form or beauty that we should desire him, Isaiah says. Jesus came undesirable. 
Not because he was inherently undesirable, but when, it, when we looked at him, we didn't want him. And when we wanted him, it was only for our convenience sake. Jesus, heal me. Jesus, give me a sign. Jesus, show me proof that you are God. And when the convenience of the Son of God fades away, we walk by him like a blurry face in the crowd. John 1 says that he came unto his own and his own didn't receive him. He was in the world and he created the world and yet the world didn't know him. He had no form or majesty that we shall look at him, no beauty that we should desire him. The, the king of kings, the, the lord of lords, undesirable. Do you know what it feels like to be undesirable? If you've been at Grace Downtown for any amount of time, uh, you know that we have talked about how our affections affect our belief that you are what you love, and that uh, in order to really believe the gospel, your affections must be stirred, your desires must be touched. And yet the, the one who, 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 who stirs all of our affections, the one, the lover of all loves, the story behind every song, the melody of every song, was undesirable. There was no affection stirring for him. No one saw him as the king of kings, this majestic being, the savior of the world, the one who came to make every wrong right. He came undesirable. This is how Jesus comes. He doesn't come and say, look at me. Look at me. He doesn't impress you with his resume. He, he comes in the darkness where we are. He comes in our nightmares. In our scary dreams, he comes like us. The suffering servant comes to serve the ones who are despised and rejected, the ones who know suffering. Jesus, the Bible, uh, the suffering servant, who we would know, we would uh, later find out is Jesus, says that he was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Do you know what it's like to be a person of sorrow? And acquainted with grief. Before grief knew your name, it knew Jesus. Before you were even born, it knew Jesus. Grief knew Jesus before it knew you. One of my professors in seminary, Dr. Dan McCartney, says, how we handle this life is a question of how we handle suffering. And this brings me to my second point, that in Isaiah 53, we see that suffering is made meaningful. But what makes it meaningful? Uh, the suffering servant on the cross tells us several, several things about suffering from the divine perspective. I'll name three. Because Jesus suffered on our behalf, because of our sin, God sympathizes with our weakness. This was even quoted in Matthew chapter 8, verses 14 through 17. Jesus came into Peter's house and he saw Peter's mother-in-law lying in the bed with a fever, the Bible says. And he touched her hand and the fever left and she got up and began to wait on him. And the Bible says that when evening came, many who were demon-possessed were brought to him. And he drove out the spirits with the word and healed all the sick. This was to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet Isaiah. He took up our infirmities and carried our diseases. 
Jesus sympathizes with our suffering. Secondly, because Jesus suffered on our behalf because of our sin, God can be trusted. Bronwyn Fryer wrote an article in the Harvard Business Review entitled, Storytelling That Moves People. She writes, the great irony of existence is that what makes life worth living does not come from the rosy side. We would all rather be lotus eaters, but life would not allow it. The energy to live comes from the dark side. It comes from everything that makes us suffer. And as we struggle against these negative powers, she says, we're forced to live more deeply and more fully. So acknowledging this dark side makes you more convincing? She asked the question and she says, of course, because you're more truthful. We don't believe a story if it doesn't have the dark side. We don't believe a story if the protagonist just wins from the beginning. The protagonist has to go through a a difficulty and conflict. That's what makes stories, a beautiful story is when you see this, uh, the, the, the main character faces this dramatic conflict and there's a climax and it's resolved. That's beautiful. That's that's how we are uh, created to respond to those stories because we know it's true. Jesus acknowledges the dark side of reality because he bore our griefs and he carried our sorrows. He was wounded for our transgressions. That term means uh, uh, to cross a forbidden boundary. He was bruised for our iniquities. Iniquities mean something that is twisted or bent or perverted. And he bore the full weight of humanity's collective evil, injustice, oppression, depravity, and guilt. And he knows our dark side better than we do ourselves. That's why the scripture says, all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And despite his personal knowledge of each of our dark sides, the things that we would dare not reveal in front of this beautiful audience, the things that we keep hidden, the things that that eat away at our soul. Jesus knows every detail. And yet, he does not run away from us. And yet, despite his personal knowledge of each of us, he chose to offer us a good life, the best life that we could ever have. A life without facing God's wrath and God's anger. A life without fearing death. A life filled with meaning and purpose and joy. Therefore, Jesus can be trusted. Thirdly, suffering produces solidarity. We are united to Christ in his suffering. Paul says in Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Isaiah 53.12 says, He was numbered with the transgressors, yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Salvation is participation. What I mean by that is you cannot have the good life without it affecting other people. If you get everything you want out of life, you know, I ask my kids this question, you know, what is the good life for you? You know, and my son, uh, he said, you know, the good life, daddy, is I have a big house filled with all this space, uh, two TVs. um, I, I can eat all the candy I want. 
And so I said, you know, in this picture of your good life, where, where's your siblings and where's your mommy and daddy? You know, how are you going to pay for that stuff, you know? And my other son was just like, yeah, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have this nice car. I'm going to have this big mansion. It's just going to be beautiful. And I'm just going to be. And, and so, and I asked him, so, you know, what about us? Where are we in this story? What if I said, you know, the good life for me is to live a life uh, free from uh, stress and, and all these children. And I just want to be in a, a big mansion with two TVs. And, and I said, how would, and I asked my kids, how, how do you think that would make you feel? And they were like, oh, we would be upset. You know, that wouldn't be the good life for us. Because my, uh, uh, my picture of the good life affects somebody else. I can't, I can't want the good life without taking something from you. I can't want the good life without affecting my family, without affecting my marriage. And so everybody is asking this question, what is the good life? And Jesus shows us that you cannot have the good life without wanting the flourishing, the salvation of the other person next to you. And what Jesus says, he wants everybody to flourish. He wants everybody ex to experience the, the communion that he has with the Father and the Spirit. He wants everyone to experience that, that fullness of joy, the, the, the fact that you, you're not afraid, that you could live life with confidence and boldness. And he wants everyone to experience that. And so when Jesus died, Jesus didn't say, you know what, I'm coming to earth to, to get my good life. Yes, he does that. He does it in, in, in obedience to the Father's will. But he does it to share the kingdom, to bring others into the family of God. Is the, the good life really good if it benefits you without benefiting your community? Jesus portrays a different picture of the good life. Like I said, he pleased the Father by taking on our punishment so that we could benefit. When God is glorified most, we are most happy. Jesus also shows us that if we don't love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength and our neighbor as ourselves, we won't experience the good life. You know, when Jesus died on the cross, it was the death of death. Jesus actually, his death accomplished something. It was not just some portrayal of, you know, uh, this is what everybody should do to show their love, right? But it actually accomplished the death of death. It actually accomplished the, the, the satisfaction of God's, the Father's wrath. It actually accomplished our salvation, our eternal life and inheritance, so that we can have our best lives now as we await Christ's return. So my question to end this sermon is, are you living the good life? And does your picture of the good life involve suffering? Jesus shows us that in order for us to have the good life, in order for us to participate in, in all of the, the realities that God has, the, the treasures in heaven, everything that God wants to give us, the fruits of the Spirit, that we ourselves must take up our cross and follow Jesus, that we must suffer. But here's the thing. When we suffer, we know that when Jesus died on the cross, it was the death of death. It was the death of, of anything that, that could... Uh, 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 affect our personal relationship with God, anything that would uh, uh, frustrate 
our communion with God. And so, my friends, I'm here to tell you that Jesus loves you. Jesus suffered on the cross for you. Jesus makes our suffering meaningful because we can face suffering knowing that he already defeated it. He already went, he sympathizes with what? He's our intercessor. He's at the, the right hand of God saying, yes, Father, I know exactly what they're going through. And so he can pray for us specifically. Do you know the Savior? The one who takes on all of our guilt and our shame and puts them on the cross and gives us his glory his confidence, his, his, his boldness, his righteousness, his moral beauty. And so I'm here to tell you that we serve a Savior who makes our suffering meaningful. We serve a Savior who is believable and trustworthy because God experienced the dark side. And so we can believe that God is for us. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for Jesus We thank you, Father, that um, you have taken on our guilt and shame, that you bore the wrath. The scripture said that it pleased the Father to bruise the Son, that he was numbered with the transgressions, that he was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement that brought us peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. Lord, bring healing to your people. Let them know, O oh God, let, I pray that you would reveal to, him, to, to everyone here that you would bear your holy arm and that the truth of the gospel would be believable. And not only believable, that we would actually participate with you, Lord. That we'd participate in your uh, uh, suffering, that we would participate in the resurrection because you have come that we might have life and have it more abundantly. And so I pray, Father, through the, blood of your Jesus, the, through the blood of your son, Jesus Christ, that you would call people to yourself and that you would let them know that they can face their suffering because you face the worst, that you sympathize, that you intercede, intercede on our behalf tonight. In Jesus' name, amen.